get myself into a little bit of hot water with the wife at times. Nine times out of ten, this is the result of me saying something stupid. Right? And you couple that with my wife's expert ability at saying nothing. You know where this is going. So in the midst of conflict, I'm making my case known, and she just waits. That's how I perceive it anyway, for me to just say something stupid. And in that process, I always seem to enter into basically just talking is self-incriminating. She just sits there quietly, and I make a fool of myself. Any men identify with this problem? Maybe, I'm, maybe that's me only. We all know I'm a weird bird. As funny as it is, the truth is, is that when we say something sinful or do something sinful in the midst of a, a very close relationship, it's painful, isn't it? It hurts. It's the nature of sin, right? It's the nature of when we say something or do something sinful in relationship to someone that's very near to us. It's almost like the, the fabric of the relationship, which over time and commitment, right, is woven together. That sin has a way of ripping, has a way of tearing. And it hurts. Tearing hurts. Sin is painful. It, it rips apart. It, it severs. It hurts. And yet at the same time, as painful as sin can be in the midst of a relationship, when the one who is offended recognizes their sin, who comes to grips with their evil, their wickedness, their, the way in which they behave, and they come and they repent and they turn from it, they humbly admit it and they ask for forgiveness, and then that moment where the offended party extends forgiveness, that moment is it's powerful, isn't it? There's greater power in forgiveness than there is pain and sin, isn't there? It's a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful moment where what happens in the midst of repentance and forgiveness is restoration. That is, that by covenant-keeping grace, especially in a marriage, there's a weaving back in of relationship, a, a restoration, a renewal that strengthens and returns it back to the condition that it was meant to be in together. Over the last month or so in the book of Exodus, we have seen God reveal himself powerfully in such a way to weave him and his people Israel together. I mean, really, we've been looking at that for almost 18 months, haven't we? And shocked as we are, we see that the people of Israel, in the midst of confusion and impatience, and also in the midst of their idolatry, wanting to turn back to their old wicked ways, 
They make for themselves a golden calf to worship, and they call it the Lord that redeemed them from Egypt. And that sin pulled apart. It severed, right? It ripped apart. And we saw that Moses interceded on behalf of the people. He said, I know, Lord, that you have every right to destroy and to remove yourself from these people, but on the basis of your covenant promise, would you please forgive? Remember that? And God forgives. God restores, and then he reveals himself to Moses, literally shows him his glory, proclaims his name, and promises that he would be with his people. And they repent. So there's restoration. There's renewal of relationship. Right? Sin was indeed painful, and it, it severed, but we see that the power of covenant-keeping grace that forgives and restores is one that is powerful to bring them back into relationship with God. So now we move forward in the story and we ask this simple question. Where do we go from here? Relationship has been restored. Sin has been forgiven. The covenant has been renewed. Where do we go from here? What's next? into this journey, as we look ahead for the nation of Israel, in some ways, we find ourselves looking back about 10 chapters into this story about where God wants to take his people, what God wants to do in relationship to his people. Where do we go from here? Where do the people of God go that they might be with their God, that they might be knowing, increasing in knowledge of their God. And where do they go to worship their God acceptably? That's what we're going to take a look at today. And I'm looking at every single one of us in the face, and I'm saying, where do you go? Where do you go to be with the Lord. Where do you go to know the Lord? Where do you go to worship acceptably the Lord? Is there anything more important to ask today than that? Well, we're going to go to Exodus 35, verse 4 in the scriptures to see. Please open up in your Bibles. Follow along on the screen. We're going to read five chapters together. Just kidding. We're going to look at really a section of Scripture that is indeed uh, five whole chapters, but we're just going to read the beginning, a few chunks in between, and the end. So follow along with me starting in verse 4. I'm going to read through 19. I'm going to read some phrases along the way, and then 32 through 43 of the 39th chapter. Is that a good deal? I think so. Let's do it. Verse 4 of chapter 35. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, 
silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court, and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. You look forward, it goes on to say that verse 8, all the craftsmen among the workmen, this is 36.8, made the tabernacle. Verse 14, he also made the curtains. Verse 20, he made the upright frames. 31, he made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for the frames on the other. Verse 35, he made the veil. Verse 37, he also made a screen for the entrance of the tent. Verse 1 of 37, Bizalel made the ark of acacia wood. Verse 6, 37, and he made a mercy seat of pure gold. And he made two cherubim of gold. Verse 10, he also made the table of acacia wood. Verse 17, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. Verse 25, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Verse 29, he made the anointing oil also. Verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 38, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Verse 8, he made the basin, I'm sorry, basin of bronze and its stand. Verse 9, and he made the court. Verse 22, Bizalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 39 goes on. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, verse 8 of 39. He made the breastpiece, verse 22. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, verse 27. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, the turban of fine linen and the caps of fine linen, verse 29, and the sash of fine twined linen, verse 30. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet. Holy to the Lord. Verses 33 through, I'm sorry, 32 through 43. 
Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of the tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen. amen. One of the questions that we ask when we approach a passage, whether it be together in a missional community or even in our private devotion times, we're looking at a passage and trying to figure out what does it really mean, is we ask this simple question, are there any repeated words in the passage? It's helpful. Maybe consider that, uh, if you have not already, for your private devotional time. When words are repeated, the author wants us to make note of it, doesn't he? He wants to wake us up. And you read in chapter 35, verses 4 through 29, really, and you realize that there's a repeated theme, a repeated phrase throughout the whole passage that you can't miss. You see, the call was clear. The Lord said in verse 4, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. He's saying it through Moses. He's asking for a contribution from the people. Right? Because verse 10, he desires, uh, verse 11 really, the building, constructing, and completion of a tabernacle. A place for the people to go. That they might be with him, that they might know him, and that they might worship him. Verse 11. And you see this repeated phrase. Verse 5. Whoever is of a generous heart. Or verse 21. Everyone whose heart stirred him. Everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22. All were, who, uh, were of a willing heart. Verse 29, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. There was a stirring in the heart of the people. There was a moving of generosity deep inside these people. 
There was a willingness that when God spoke, let everyone bring that which is valuable to them for the work of the Lord. There was no manipulation. There was no coercion. There was no guilt-riddenness that was motivating these people. There was no ultimatum given. If you don't, here will be the awful consequences. There was a command from a God who had saved them to take something from them sacrificially and to say, hey, I'm willing to lose. Take from what is mine. I'm willing to lose so that the work of the Lord could be accomplished. We can't miss those repeated phrases. It says something about the state and the the state of the heart of the people that the Lord was obeying at that time. What a contrast to what we saw before with these people, right? That the Lord's saving work, His revelation to them, had really made an impact on them. That all he had to do was say, let everyone take what is of them, that, which is valuable to them. And bring it to me that we might construct a tabernacle. And their hearts were moved. I can't help but wonder if that's the state of our heart. As we see the work of the Lord set before us. The opportunity... To see God do something for His glory through His people in the world. If our heart is to say, you know what? I'm moved. My heart is stirred. I'm willing. And I love the emphasis as well. Verse 29, all of them. Some people say, that in terms of giving and tithing in the church, there's about 10, 11% at best. Truly, that's sad, right? I mean, we can have this conversation about giving and tithing. We can have that talk. But just 11%. And I can't help but lo- uh, see that word all, all the women, all the men of the people of Israel whose heart moved them. There was a, a collective desire to contribute to the work of the Lord. Based on not guilt, not coercion, but based on the fact that they had been redeemed and brought out of Egypt and that He had spared them from His holiness and His judgment after their idolatry, there was a moving of spirit in them. We want to contribute. We want to participate in what God is doing in the world. Sign me up. And we see that God is calling for a tabernacle and He's doing it in a way that is calling for the participation of His people. That's how God works. He works in the world through His people that are moved to participate with Him. We've always, at Renovation Church, set that out for you. That it was less about budgets and dollars and and, 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 revenues and this, that, and the other thing. It was less about your obligation as a Christian. It was about God who had saved you and redeemed you and poured out His grace abundantly to you through Jesus in such a way that it 
the grace that we have received overflows into the lives of other people through generosity. That's always been our gospel-driven, gospel-centered call to each and every one of you. That as the Lord has saved and redeemed you, you are moved in spirit to say, I want to participate with other people in the, in the work of God in the world. And I love what happens. If you turn the next page, we see that so many people gave that they basically told people to quit. Like, dude, we got too much gold up in here. Y'all need to keep your gold at home. Right? There was, a, there was an abundance. There was an overflow. That the generosity was so overwhelming that they literally told them to stop. Stop giving. This is ridiculous. Imagine that. Imagine if the generosity, really, here's the thing at stake. Imagine if the gospel took root to that extent in the lives of Americans who are addicted to things and consumerism. That there was more than we needed. Imagine if we had to send a letter out. Dude, we don't need your money anymore. Give to somebody else. Keep it. That would be a radical reality that I think would be awesome. This is what God is doing. He wants a tabernacle and the people to contribute to it. And they do so generously. And then they, we see that they move on to constructing the tabernacle, right? That all those phrases that, that, that the two men that were called forward, those who were not only giving of their resources but their giftedness and their time, were saying, hey, the skill the Lord has given me, I want to give myself to it. And they build. And other skilled people come around them and they complete it. They construct it. You know, before, uh, you look back in 25 through, through 31, we see that the Lord is instructing them about the design of this tabernacle, but he's saying, you will do this. They shall do this. But we see here that after repenting of sin and being restored into relationship with God, they're not just talking about a future construction, that this is something that they are actually doing. They're obeying the Lord's command. That's, that's repeated over and over again in the story. He did it. They did it. They completed it. They made this. They put this together. Right? And we see at the end that according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Moses inspects it. And he says, it's complete. It passes inspection. They did it, right? The, their obedience is something that needs to be stressed. That that's what God uses, right? God uses our generosity and God uses our obedience, our, our obedient heart and actions that he might work in the world. So we see this very detailed yet simple structure, this tent, this tabernacle, this place for uh, for God to be and to dwell. But really the most important thing I ask as I come to a passage like this is why all this? Why such ornate design? Why such value going into such a tabernacle? What is God up to? What is God really doing here? 
I think we have to turn back to chapter 25. When God gave the original instructions of this tabernacle. 25 verse 8 says this. Let them make for me a sanctuary. That I may dwell in their midst. Don't miss that. Let me... Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. There's a design. And all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And yet we see in verse 8 that this design is something that is simply facilitating a desire. God wants something specifically. In verse 8 tells us that he wants to dwell he wants to live. He wants to be in the midst of his people. But not only that, if we turn to chapter 29, towards the end, again, of the first run at these instructions, verse 43 says, There I will meet with the people of Israel. He wants to be with them. Don't miss that. And it shall be sanctified by my glory, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. There's not just a tabernacle. There's also a priesthood to serve in the tabernacle. Here's why. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. He doesn't just want to be with them. The Lord wants to be known by them. Don't miss that. There's a desire that this design is facilitating. They will know that I am the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Why a tabernacle? See, the design is facilitating a desire. God wants to be with His people. And the Lord wants to be known by His people. And I could not help but think about the relationship between proximity and knowledge. In other words, I couldn't help but think about the relationship with being with someone and knowing them. Right? Isn't that really what it's all about? That, that being near to God, for God to be in the midst of his people. And how that would instigate knowledge. Tomorrow's November 9th, 2015. Marks 21 years since that woman over there said, sure, we can date. And I'm like, Really? I don't have a Porsche. Actually, my mom's got to drive us everywhere. <laughs> 21 years. Some of you are thinking, isn't he 18? How does that math work out? There's so much more to know about Doreen, but I know her. Why? Time together. It's that simple. Time together. And of course, trust. Right? So we see that God wants to be known by his people. 
and he does the first thing that's necessary. He places himself in the midst of his people. You can't know someone you're not near. And I wonder as you think about your own relationship with God. Knowledge and nearness go hand in hand. Are you near to God? Do you know Him? I think those questions go together. So that's what the tabernacle is really facilitating. And here's the thing. The, the most lovely thing about this is it wasn't as if the people came up with this idea. Hey, Lord, why don't we build you a tabernacle so that you can come down here because we really want to get to know you. No, it's the exact opposite. God instigates and initiates this whole process. It's his design. It's his desire. These people are simply the chosen ones that he has said, yeah, I want to be with those people. I want to spend time with those people. I want those people to know who I am. And I wonder if you look back on your life and you recognize that that's basically what your redemption has been. That's what your salvation has been all about. God said, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. And I want to be near you. I want you to be near. Draw near to God. I will draw near to you. The Lord wants to be near you. That's why you're saved. That's why you're redeemed. And that's shocking to us because we often think that God is distant, indifferent, and really confusing, and if you're an agnostic, really unknowable, right? Isn't that the main thing that while there may be a deity, there may be someone out there, some sort of higher power, but you can't really know who he is. But we see that Exodus has been a story about how God has initiated in the world the revelation of who he is so that a people might know him to make him known to the world. God wants to be known. He's not playing hide and seek. He's not playing hard to get, actually. God wants to be with us as his people. God wants to be known by us. Ultimately, that he might be worshipped by us. That's what the tabernacle, that's what the Levites and the priests, that's where the people of Israel were to go. They were to go to the tabernacle through the Levites so that they might be with God, so that they might know God, and so that they might worship God. That's where they were to go. And that's through whom they were to go. This place, the tabernacle, the Levites, through Aaron, these priests set apart as sacred, this place, these priests. That's really what this is all about. But then you're asking yourself the question, where do I go? The Lord's design is facilitating this desire for a place for his people to go that they might be with him, that they might know him, that they might worship him. But where do you go? Where do we go from here? There's no tabernacle, right? Where's our place that we go? Where's our priesthood? You see, the answer to that question is depending upon the God you worship. If you're a Muslim, you go to a mosque. Right? 
If you're a Hindu, you may go to a temple, or you may go just inward in yourself. Look inward. Same with Buddhist. You may go to a temple, but you may just meditate and look inward. Go to somewhere inside yourself to be with, to know, and to worship your God. If you're some sort of atheist or agnostic, lives in America, you may go here. I wonder if today, technology is not our temple, where we go to worship our God. Does it sound too fundamentalist to say that maybe Facebook is our own little private temple where we engage in self-worship? Just pushing that button a little bit. This becomes, in many ways, a sanctuary for us, a place where we go when the going gets rough. Something we can control, something we can manipulate to help us get back into control of the life that we've lost and are now out of control. Does that make any sense? Where do we go to worship? Where do we go to be with our God? To be knowing our God and to be worshiping our God. Some of you are saying, well, here we go. He's just trying to beef the numbers and get people to come to church. I would even say that many evangelicals are confused about the answer to this question. That many of you here may be in this room with false understanding and false expectations. I would say that you could come to this place week in, week out with the expectation that because you're in these four walls that you're in this building that you've come to a place where you can be with God you can know God and that you can worship God because this is some sort of new tabernacle or some sort of new temple this building I would venture to say and warn you that you could come here for 50 years and never experience God at all. Because you've come with a dutiful idea, religious idea that just showing up here is going to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the sanctuary. Have we used that language before? Do we still call this the sanctuary? What are we going with that? Well, the sanctuary is where God lives. But what we come to know as we understand the full story is that God does not live in buildings. Amen? That really God's presence amongst his people, God's uh, revelation, that the knowledge of him and the worship of him is not a place at all anymore. That really, this design is not just something that facilitates a desire, but it also foreshadows a greater desire and a greater fulfillment of that. That there's not just a place we go, but a person that we go to be with God. A person that we go to so that we might know God. And a person that we go to to worship God acceptably. 
that this tabernacle and the temple that later is built is something that is, is not the substance of what God has designed for his people, but really the shadow that points to the substance, and that is Jesus. John 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That term dwelt means tabernacled. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the person in which Colossians 1.19 says, all the fullness of deity was pleased to what? Dwell. So in Jesus, God dwells in the midst of his people. And we see that in the incarnation, which we're about to celebrate this Christmas, is that God has come into the world to live with his people, to be with his people. And he does that fully in Christ, not in tabernacle, not in physical structure, not in bricks mortar, right? Not in tents, but in the person of Jesus. That it is to Jesus we must go to be with God, to know God, and to worship God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said to his disciples. It's not just to him that we go. It is also through him. You see, even the Levitical priesthood, the holy priest who would serve in the temple was inadequate for the task, at least in terms of God's eternal desire for his people, that there was another priest who would serve forever and would make one sacrifice, his own body, and that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 through 9 unpackaged this idea that the, that the Levitical priesthood, all the old code, was just a foreshadowing that pointed to Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, that that was just a shadow of the good things that was to come, that Jesus is not just the place we go, but he is the priest we go through so that we might be near God, so that we might know God, and so that we might worship God acceptably and eternally. It's all Jesus. It's not this building. It's the person we celebrate when we gather in this building. And if we could be in my mold-filled basement, we're praising Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, God's there. Amen? So my question for you is, where do you go from here? Where do you go? Where will you go to fulfill the Lord's desire in your life? He wants to be with his people. He wants to be known by his people. He wants to be worshipped acceptably by his people. 
Do you go to Jesus? Or somewhere else? If we find ourselves going somewhere else other than Jesus, we will find ourselves empty of all of these promises. All of these blessings. The, the text ends, and Moses blessed them. Right? In the midst of this obedience, in the midst of completing the task that the Lord had given to them, he ends by blessing them. And we need the Lord's blessing, don't we? Our work is nothing if it is not fully obedient to the Lord and blessed by the Lord. If we go to anywhere but Jesus, we will be severed from all of God's blessing. The Lord's desire I'm sorry, the Lord's design foreshadows His desire. And that desire was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is to Him we must go. It is through Him we must go. In order to be with God, in order to know God, in order to worship God acceptably. Go to Jesus today. Go to Jesus every day. And you know, some have taken this understanding and they've begun to say, you know what? We don't need church. Church isn't that. You know, like God lives in me. I can go anywhere I want. I can do anything I want. I can be in the middle of the woods on my own. It's me and Jesus. I'm playing golf with Jesus today. Because God no longer lives in a building. It's true. With a very bad application. God is present in the midst of his people. Okay, I'm not saying he's not living inside of you. But please, if we take the individual blessing, we can't sever it from the corporate reality. We have that individually because it's connected to a covenant community known as the people of God. So understand this, that it's not this building, but understand this, that in order to be with God and to know God and to worship God acceptably, acceptably we do this together because God just doesn't want to live with you, no offense. He wants to be in the midst of his people. So don't skip church. Don't be guilted into it either. But on the basis of his Mercy on the basis of his salvation. Together, time together. Let's go to Jesus. Let's know God through Jesus. Let's worship God through Jesus. Let's be with God through Jesus together. Let's make a commitment. Let's take out our temples and let's put in something. Church on Sunday. Because this is where God is with us. He's with his people. Let's be committed to the way in which God has designed His presence, knowledge of Him, and the worship of Him. It's all about Jesus. Amen? At this time, 
I want to strongly encourage each and every one of you to take an evaluation of your life, your worship. Where do you go in your lowest moment? Where do you go to increase in your knowledge of God? Where do you go to be with your God? Ask yourself the simple question, do I go solely and wholly to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your redemption. You have indeed saved us from our sin. You've taken us from Egypt. You've revealed yourself powerfully and miraculously and brought us to a promised land, to a place where you would be with your people, where we would know you as our God, and that we would worship you acceptably throughout all eternity. And that promised land, that place is Jesus. And so now we turn from all else and we turn to Him. And we give you the praise for your grace that has initiated all these blessings in our lives. Lord, you are an awesome God indeed. We pray this in your name.